The next case was presented by Dr. Harwin, an older woman with polycythemia vera. This is a 76-year-old woman with a history of polycythemia vera for several years who was stable in hydroxyurea. She also has a history of multiple recurrent DVTs, much of it during the time I've managed her, so we kept her on chronic Coumadin therapy. And about a year ago, her disease began to change. She developed significant splenomegaly. She had lower extremity edema, systemic symptoms, low-grade fevers, and malaise. We repeated her bone marrow, and it didn't really show any frank myelofibrosis. But after a little bit of hesitancy, I went ahead and started on ruxolitinib, and almost immediately, she had significant improvement in her splenomegaly. Her systemic symptoms resolved, and her quality of life has considerably improved. She's also had resolution of her edema, and she continues to do well on a stable dose with marked improvement in her splenomegaly. And I guess it's been about a year now since she started the ruxolitinib. What was her lifestyle like at that point? What was she doing? What was her performance status, and how is it now? Now she's pretty much normal and can do just about anything. You know, we were talking today, it's funny because I ran into her in a restaurant about six months ago in town, but she really was starting to get sick when she started on therapy and there was a considerable drop in her performance status. So Ruben, looking back at her course at the point at which she started the ruxolitinib, can you sort of analyze or talk about that decision at that point in time and also, what clinical research data we have about the use of JAK inhibitors, specifically ruxolitinib and P-Vera? So I think in many ways, she was really a poster child for you know, those sorts of individuals in which can benefit from a JAK inhibitor. You know, polycythemia vera is a very heterogeneous disease. There's about 150,000 patients in the U.S. with polycythemia vera. You know, and they really range on the one end from people who are completely asymptomatic who just need a few phlebotomies and have very, very low risk and no symptoms. The other end of the spectrum are people that have already or are on the precipice of changing into myelofibrosis with advanced splenomegaly, dropping counts, severe symptoms. She's someone who is in that bucket of moving towards myelofibrosis. We know these are progressive chronic myeloid neoplasms. In the spectrum of P. vera patients, there is a good third of them that are moving toward myelofibrosis in one way or the other, whether that's an enlarged spleen, lots of symptoms, difficult to control disease features. I'd say that patients with PVR who benefit from JAK inhibitors really fall into several categories. One, there are those that we studied in the response study, those that had failed hydroxyurea and had other problematic disease features. These individuals clearly benefited compared to best alternative therapy for controlling counts, reducing phlebotomy, improving splenomegaly, improving symptoms, and likely even decreasing the risk of vascular events. The second group, I would say, are people like this patient specifically, you know, with really movement toward myelofibrosis. From my end, to be honest, whether they failed hydroxyurea or not doesn't really change the circumstance that they'll still benefit from the therapy because of the splenomegaly symptoms and other difficulties that they have. The final group is that there are people that hydroxyurea has been adequate for controlling their counts, but really inadequate for controlling their symptoms with either severe pruritus, fatigue, night sweats, or other difficulties. You know, so I view that there's really several groups that likely benefit from therapy with jack inhibition in PVRA. 
What about the bucket of patients who are having problems tolerating hydroxyurea, and what kinds of problems do you see there? So I'd say there are various ways of not tolerating hydroxyurea. The most common are really excessive cytopenias. As we look at resistance and intolerance, I think if you give anyone enough hydroxyurea, they will respond. They just won't tolerate it. You know, if I give a patient five grams of hydroxyurea twice a day, it will lower their counts. But clearly, they'll have an aplastic marrow. So I think that there are patients that, again, as we really try to control the hematocrit, control the platelets, for many of them, they don't tolerate it because of either neutropenia or thrombocytopenia. Non-hematologic toxicities are variable. They clearly can include risk of skin cancers. I think that's a big concern. We saw many patients today with both Bill and Jim that have had already basal cell carcinomas or other skin-related challenges. Is that part from the hydroxyurea? Is that part from you know, living in a very sunny state? Is that part heritage? It's probably a mixture of all of those things. Other side effects clearly can be mucocutaneous, can be fevers. Sometimes patients can have hydroxyurea cycling in terms of their counts and be very difficult to manage. So there really are a range of ways an individual can be intolerant of hydroxyurea. Could you summarize the clinical research data available on using JAK inhibitors, specifically ruxolitinib and P-Vera? Well, I'd say that the key study that we have is a response study. The response study, we now have 80-week data. And with that, the primary endpoints were really superiority of ruxolitinib over best alternative therapy with several key endpoints. One, complete response by European leukemia and that criteria. Two, resolution of need for phlebotomy. Resolution of splenomegaly, improvement in symptoms. In each of these, it was vastly superior, the ruxolitinib versus the best alternative therapy. Another key point is the rate of thrombotic events. The study was not powered for superiority in thrombotic events because the rate of events is low in both arms, but there still was quite a difference. There was only one thrombotic event in the ruxolitinib arm and eight events in the best alternative therapy arm. Another key statement from the trial is that although best alternative therapy was a comparator, there really are so few options for patients that have failed hydroxyurea that most of them still remained on hydroxyurea because there really was no alternative. Patients can use busulfan, but there's great concerns about it being leukemogenic, and interferons are not indicated in this disease. So the number of alternative options are, are really quite few. Bill, what comorbidities, if any, did this lady have? And can you talk about how you've dosed her and how she's tolerated treatment? Yeah, I've treated her at 10 milligrams twice a day of ruxolitinib, and I've maintained the same dose. She's otherwise in good health other than the frequent thrombotic events. With her lower extremity edema, she was getting occasional some slight leg ulcers. She's not on hydroxyurea now. And to me, I've seen a couple of cases over the years where I thought hydroxyurea has maybe been reported to cause some peripheral skin ulcers, but I'm not sure if that's a recognized thing. I would say absolutely that we see that it can cause leg ulcerations. The first reported case, which was reported in the Annals of Internal Medicine back at Mayo in the early 90s, we were able to kind of recognize that association. But it's not uncommon that I've seen people come in with really both ankles bandaged, you know, on hydroxyurea with bilateral ulcers that haven't healed. They're coming to see me for a completely different reason, unaware that there is that link. Interesting. And those resolve once you stop the hydroxyurea? 
They do, they do tend to be slow. I mean, I do find that they are in people that at least have a tendency toward vascular issues. I can't say I tend to see them in, you know, a 24-year-old who's on hydroxyurea. So they do tend to have a little bit of vascular issues, but they do resolve, but it is a lengthy process. Bill, do you have any questions for Ruben about this general issue of management of P-Vera, integration of JAK inhibitors, and also this lady moving forward? Well, it's a little bit easier now because ruxolitinib has the indication for patients that are not responding or intolerant to hydroxyurea, but at the time, it really didn't have that indication. I was a little bit reluctant to move as quickly because she didn't have an exact myelofibrosis in her bone marrow. In retrospect, of course, everything's a spectrum, and it just it made sense to go ahead and do it. Any questions that you get, Ruben, from a general oncologist about this issue? So I'd say a couple of things that we ended up discussing today. One is the issue of the iron. There are many of these patients, again, they're in that kind of spectrum. Their counts are softer. They're iron deficient. We traditionally have avoided iron in the setting of the P-Vera phase or the earlier phase of the disease. But when they are on jack inhibition, we can at least kind of, you know, gently replace some amount of the iron, typically orally to help alleviate some of that compounding of the symptoms with the issue of the iron. Two people sometimes ask about dosing. You know, the dosing for the indication in P-Vera is at 10 twice a day. I think that's a very reasonable dose. But there are some patients, not all P-Vera patients are the same. Some who have a very proliferative phenotype, very high white count, very high red count, lots of phlebotomies, high platelet count, severe pruritus, Some of them do require more. We have had patients on as high as 25 twice a day of the ruxolitinib, in particular with the severest cases of pruritus. Do you see patients, Ruben, who have disease progression on, for example, ruxolitinib, but still with the P-Vera, and what do you do in that situation? Well, I'd say that, you know, in the P-Vera experience that is less mature than the myelofibrosis experience, you know, there still, of course, is the potential for the disease to progress. We don't fully know whether inhibition of JAK2 fully inhibits disease progression. We believe that it probably has an impact, but it's not a complete resolution of disease progression. There may be other mechanisms. You know, as we think about perhaps an analogy with CML, we know CML completely shut down at its earliest phases of the chronic phase, with an impactful TKI probably does not accelerate most of the time to accelerate or blast phase. We still wonder whether we are using JAK inhibition further down the course. People with more advanced PV or people with MF in which already they have some movement of progression. I think there will be interest over time as we have better surrogates of progression should we be intervening earlier and earlier to try to prevent progression. There is a study that is launching that is in low-risk myelofibrosis, but molecularly high-risk, again, to try to see can we intervene earlier and shut down disease progression. What about other JAK inhibitors? So I'd say that that is clearly an area of interest. There is no published data yet regarding the three viable JAK inhibitors of pacritinib, mamalitinib, and NS018. There have been others that have looked at P-Vera and ET, both LY2784544, as well as the fedratinib, 
Both of those studies were largely negative studies in those areas. I suspect we'll find that ET and P-Vera are separate. There still may be much more of a role in P-Vera. In ET, people, again, like this patient who are progressing toward mild fibrosis probably might benefit. Patients who primarily just need cytoreduction reduction of platelets alone, it may have less of a natural indication. Bill, what's this lady's lifestyle right now? Does she live with family or a spouse? She lives by herself. There's no spouse. She has children up north, but she pretty much carries on normal activities. Anything else you want to say about her, either one of you, or her case? I'd say in many ways, she was really a great example of the benefit that can really be seen in polycythemia vera. The disease is a spectrum, but she looked great. She was active, feeling well, weight is stabilized. I'd say a very successful and you know, someone involved with the study is very rewarding to see someone benefiting that way. Yeah, from my perspective, you know, I, obviously ruxolitinib works in the splenomegaly of these myoplastic disorders. I don't see that many patients with these kind of symptoms, but she went basically from a sick patient to not a sick patient in just a very short period of time, in, in a week or two with therapy. So it's pretty impressive. If she were to ask you, Ruben, and maybe she did ask you today, what to expect from the future, the next five or 10 years, what would you say? Well, I'd say it'd be incredibly hopeful. I think that there are a variety of things which are evolving. One, I suspect that the impact on patients with P-Vera, you know, may be a very durable impact with ruxolitinib. At the moment, our studies are still young enough that I can't say I know what that duration will be, but I'm hopeful that it will be lengthy. Two, I'm very hopeful that we will further gain insight into why people progress and we'll have better surrogate markers of progression to be able to both be aware of that earlier as well as hopefully be able to intervene earlier.